What's up, everybody? Another episode of the 40 Minutes in L podcast, our college hoops talk on WFUB Sports. Jackson Heil, Ryan Gregware, episode three. And, well, we got a final four. We, we do for sure. And I think a lot of people happy, surprised to see some of the names involved and some of the teams involved. Gonzaga, obviously the main feature there. Baylor, Houston, and UCLA, the surprise first team ever to make it out of the first four to the final four in what's been an improbable run by Mick Cronin's squad. But we'll get there in a little bit. Ryan, how you doing, brother? I'm doing good. Uh, you know, just another weekend where I'm sitting on my couch watching games all day, and it feels great to do so. We're getting towards the end here. Obviously, we have, you know, some big, some big time upsets. I was going into that UCLA game, I was just thinking, like, there's no way this wouldn't be college basketball if it was just three ones and a two. There's got to be something to give here. Something did give, but yeah, I'm doing great. Um, you know, can't wait for this weekend and wrap up the season. It sure is exciting um, to have the potential of the Gonzaga Baylor NCA final. Um, I think that's the matchup. I mean, I know that's the matchup I've been eyeing up since literally December, to say the least. And the anticipation is getting there. We're two games away from a potential Goliath against Goliath matchup between those two teams. But we'll talk about what we saw this weekend in the Sweet 16. We'll break down how the regions turned out. Um, I know I had three of the four Final Four teams in, yeah, so they did pretty well there. Um, but first things first, we got some big news in the Bronx. And Fordham has a new head coach, and we're going to get into that first given that we are a Fordham University-based radio station. And this is probably the biggest news in maybe the last two decades um, of Fordham basketball, to say the least. Kyle Neptune hired as the new head coach by new athletic director Ed Cull. Neptune, eight years as an assistant under Jay Wright, one of the top recruiters for Villanova. He beats out Jared Grasso, the head coach at Bryant. He was the second finalist, um, actually the lone finalist, I should say, for the Fordham job. And Neptune begins a new chapter for the Rams after they let go of Jeff Newbauer middle of the season. Mike DePauli finished out the rest of the year. But Kyle Neptune is the guy to lead this program forward. And I know I got a lot to say about it, but Ryan, I'll give it to you first overarching opinions on what is probably the most important hire in what is now the last 30 years of Fordham basketball. Yeah, I have a ton of optimism with hiring Neptune. Going into the process, I didn't really know much about him. There were a ton of names thrown out there. And as we got later, it looked like they were going to hire him. And with Nova's season, obviously, you know, getting as far as it did, there was a little delay there. But Neptune, the thing I love about him the most is his New York City roots. Uh, you know, he's a Brooklyn native. And something that, you know, me personally that I wanted in our coach was someone who understood the city. You know, there's so much good talent here. And so hopefully Neptune having, you know, AAU, AAU uh, roots and being, you know, enriched in the city will be able to kind of recruit heavily here and get some of the local talent. But overall, I think, you know, he gave some introductory words the other day and I was really impressed with what he said. He said all the right things. I like, you know, obviously Jay Wright gave him a ton of praise. But overall, I do have a ton of optimism that he can be the guy at Fordham here. I have a lot to say about this hire in general um, for a lot of reasons. One, that it is a very significant hire in the future of Fordham basketball, maybe the most significant move in the last 20 to 30 years, like I talked about. But 
I, I do want to get this out of the way first because I think with as much positivity as there is out there, I just want to mention from my perspective, Neptune was not my first choice. And that's not a bad thing either for Kyle Neptune because I thought there was a ton of good opportunities to make a good hire here for Ed Cole. And Neptune was certainly one of them. And he was one of the guys on my list. I personally was of the opinion that Shaheen Holloway should have been the number one choice for the job. But again, that's to me more about Holloway's credentials as opposed to Kyle Neptune's credentials. Because I think I look at this hire right now, and I'm very cautiously optimistic about this. And, and that says a lot because I, if you've ever listened to me talk about Fordham basketball, I am not one to be optimistic and I'm not an optimistic person in general, but I think you look at Neptune, you look at the resume and there's nothing to suggest this guy can't be a really good head coach, especially at Fordham in a university that needs it really badly because you look at the recruiting he's done over the last eight years, look at all of these guys at Nova that he's brought in. And yes, there's obviously the, allure of Villanova, a two-time national champion. Having GQJ, Jay Wright, as the head coach of Villanova is certainly a pull there. But the most important thing when it comes to recruiting outside the head coach is the guys that are making the relationships, making the roads to create these connections. And, and Kyle Neptune was that guy at Villanova, along with Ashley Howard, when he left for LaSalle. And you look at the names that have gone through this program, guys that are in the league right now. I mean, Eric Pascal is obviously one of those big guys that comes to mind, given that he spent the year at Ford and he transferred to Villanova. But Jalen Brunson, um, right now you have Jeremiah Robinson, or the list goes on and on back with Ryan Archie Diacono, uh, who, I mean, I could really go on on Josh Hart. There's so many guys that he has been a huge part of getting there, including Dante DiVincenzo who's playing really good basketball with the Bucs. There's, I can say everything I can about the recruiting aspect of it, and that's the most important part of this job for me if I'm hiring, is to get a guy who you know can not only recruit anywhere, but specifically can recruit in this area. And we know Kyle Neptune can do that. He's a Brooklyn guy. He's got AAU roots within the tri-state area, specifically in New York. And so much of the talk about what – alumni what fans want for this job is guys who can keep the talent in New York and keep the talent in the Bronx and that's something that Jeff Neubauer didn't do plain and simple and this is a guy in Neptune who's under 40 years old is going to have the opportunity and is probably going to be the guy that begins a change in the systematic look at how Fordham recruits going forward and that's the most important thing for me. And you talk about a guy who recruited so many great players. Look at the reaction he's getting on Twitter. Eric Pascal tweeting out. All these guys I mentioned, Archie Diacono, Brunson. I, I'm sure there's a plenty more when it comes to guys who have tweeted out about him. And we saw what Jay Wright said about him. And our, our own Emmanuel Barbari had a great opportunity to sit down with Kyle Neptune. I recommend everyone checking out that interview who is a fan of Fordham basketball and listening to this podcast. But the things that have been said about Kyle Neptune from his former prod, uh, prodigy in Jay Wright, his former players who he brought on, it, that's significant to me because that tell, tells me he's a player's coach. And, and I think that's really important because it's a significant shift for what was the case over the last six years at Fordham. So, I mean, I'm excited for it. 
like I mentioned, he wasn't my first choice, but he's a guy who meets every – he checks every box when it comes to looking at a guy who can be a significant hire here and be a good hire here. And uh, for that reason, I am excited and I'm optimistic about the future. The, the JRI coaching tree hasn't turned out too great. Um, I'll, I'll be plain and simple there and transparent, but there's always a reason that that can change. And Kyle Neptune very well may be the guy to do that. Yeah. Uh, something else that I've seen some criticism about that we talked about before the show is just because he has no coaching experience. You know, there were some people that were calling for just a guy that's more experienced. And we both were saying pre-show how we don't really agree with that. You know, you bring in Neptune and you see what Jay Wright said about him. You talked about it a little. He talked about how for a young guy, he's, you know, more ready to be a head coach than most. He mentioned how great he is in the X's and O's. Obviously, as you talked about, the players really do like him. Seeing the reaction all around, that interview, Emmanuel, that you brought up, I really was impressed with what Neptune said. He kind of said all the right things. He was at, you know, he said he's a basketball head through and through. It's really all he cares about. And you talked about the recruiting a lot and how this could be kind of a monumental hire at Forum. You know, I don't want to go crazy here, but, you know, changes do need to be made, obviously. This program has struggled for a long time, and it starts inside the city and getting the talent. And Neptune kind of is, you know, the poster boy for being able to do that with all the roots and everything that we've talked about. There are a bunch of things that Neptune needs to do to change this program. And let's not understate the challenge that he has ahead of him. And I think one of the great things for Neptune in being a first-time head coach is that although there's pressure because of how significant of a hire this is, the bar is really low right now. Let, let's just be straight up about it. I mean, what this program has been over the last six years, it, it's hard to get lower than what it is right now. So Neptune is going to have time. And you know that Ed Cole, who has done a great job since taking over this gig as the new athletic director and the interim tag has been dropped, give him a ton of credit as well because he surveyed a wide list of names. Like There's going to be no questions left that he missed someone in the process because you look at the list of names that he talked to, it spans really wide and far when it comes to guys with experience. We know Fran Priscilla was in the running. We know Steve Lavin was in the running at one point. To up-and-comers like Holloway and Grasso, who we talked about, and Neptune being one of the most bright assistants in all of college basketball coming into it. But there are a lot of things that he's going to have to do to turn around this program. One of them being the things we talked about in terms of recruiting. He's going to have to keep local talent in here. And also, I think the transfer portal is going to be something that's really significant, especially with what college basketball is right now with immediate eligibility. That's going to be critical in order for not only building a program, but starting a culture of potential winning in the Bronx. And we know it's not going to happen right away. Let's just be honest. We know what the program is right now. We know the state it's in. Neptune has a long way to go to get this to a point where this team can be significantly competitive in what's a really good conference in the Atlantic 10. But you look at the tools that he has, he has the roots in New York and he has the roots in the tri-state area being someone who's recruited in Philadelphia and being someone who is an assistant coach at Niagara as well. He is going to have a staff that is going to be centered around the AAU circuits 
in New York. I mean, I've seen rumors of Mike Rice being a potential guy who I think would be a great assistant hire, someone who has had coaching experience. Yes, it ended terribly at Rutgers, but someone who's been there, someone who could be a guiding voice on the sideline. Listen, he's no Phil Martelli to Juwan Howard at Michigan, but you need someone like that, I think, who's been there, who's been a head coach before, who also has the roots and connections to make things happen like that. And we'll see what else he does with the staff as well. I think that, uh, listen, I, I've talked poorly about the staff around Jeff Newbauer at his time at Fordham, and I think that's something that needs to be emphasized. But at the same time, I think Mike DePauli deserves a very good look and should get every opportunity to, to stay on the staff if he so desires and doesn't want to leave. Um, I think there are a few other guys, including Herschel Jenkins, who has done a good job with this program as a director of basketball operations. There are guys on the staff who I think should be given the opportunity to stay. I don't think it has to be an entirely cleaning of house, but the two most important things for a new head coach, especially, I think, is creating a great staff because that's where so much of the recruiting comes from, assistant coaches, things of that nature, some guys who have roots in the area, which I have no doubts that Neptune is going to do given his reach in this area, given the guys he's worked under before in Jay Wright, who has had terrific staffs amongst him, and then also recruiting in the New York area. That, that's the most important thing. We can talk X's and O's all we want, but the, the biggest thing for me is that you got to get the talent here first, especially in Jay Wright's system. I, I know that a lot of people will look to Jay Wright and say, this guy's a great coach. This guy comes from Jay Wright and he's automatically going to be an offensive guru. But if you watch Jay Wright's teams, he runs a lot of four out, a lot of, uh, a lot of four one, a lot of five out. And a lot of his system relies on getting elite talent there, personally. And that's not a bad thing, because Jay Wright, I think, is a master of giving his players freedom, allowing his guys to be able to really have a lot – of wiggle room within that offense to do stuff that they want to do and create their own shots and opportunities. But you got to have the talent there to do so. Because if you have a bunch of guys who aren't good decision makers, if you have a bunch of guys who lack the talent to do so, Jay Wright's offense is going to take a while to build up. And that's why you got to give Kyle Neptune time, in my opinion. That, that's the biggest thing. Give him three years. Let's be patient in this process and give him the opportunity to establish what Jay Wright has done, but he's going to do it the Kyle Neptune way. He's not going to do it Jay Wright's way. Kyle Neptune's Kyle Neptune, Jay Wright's Jay Wright. Give Neptune the opportunity to create his own culture, create his own image at Fordham. And, and that's how winning is going to start at Fordham. Yeah, that was kind of my last point here was just about the time aspect because, you know, we I don't want to see like if they struggle a few years, people calling for his job or anything like that. I think for this to be done the right way, Obviously, he's young. Obviously, he doesn't have the head coaching experience. He needs to get time to get his guys in there, his culture, his staff. And I really do think that it's going to come down to that. Um, you know, we'll see the staff that he assembles the next few days. Also, we'll see the contract. I believe it's not out yet. Um, it won't be official for a while. But I do think that Neptune, if given enough time, can turn things around here and, you know, make this at least a respectable program, right? I think a big thing you talked about was the bar. It's so low. Like, even though there are expectations, the bar is so incredibly low right now to just any type of success is going to make this fan base happy where there hasn't been that in recent years. So really, even though there is pressure, there really is a low bar that he has to meet. And he really should go above that. 
And that's just kind of my last thing on Neptune. You know, as I said earlier, I was impressed with what he said earlier. Obviously, he's got to do it on the court. It's going to take some time. I think if he gets time, he can be successful there. Yeah, I'll give my last word on it right now before we go into what happened this weekend in the Final Four um, setting up. But Kyle Neptune checks all the boxes. And I know I've mentioned that already, but he's a guy that really does make you believe that this program can turn around. I mean, he said all the right things in the press conference. You look at the accolades, eight years under Jay Wright, one of the best coaches in the country. He's learned from one of the best. He's well-spoken for sure. And I don't think him not having had coaching experience at this level means anything, to be quite honest with you. That, that's where I'm at with this because he has all the qualities of a good coach going forward. Now, am I concerned about the Jay Wright head coaching tree? Yes. Am I concerned that he can – am I concerned about what he can bring to the table at this next level? I think you have to be given that you haven't seen um, him as a head coach. But like I said, if there's someone who's going to be able to do it, it is Neptune. He, he knows the area. He's from Brooklyn. He's got the AAA – excuse me, the AAA – Jesus. The hmm. AAU roots here. That's important. He's going to hire a staff that's going to be able to recruit in this area and get winning talent here. And look at the endorsements. That, that's the biggest thing from the former players to Jay Wright, from our own women's basketball head coach, Stephanie Gately, who I know had a lot of influence in this hire. If she thinks he's good, I'm on board. Because if there's anyone at Fordham that knows winning, it's Stephanie Gately, to say the least. She's won two A-10 championships. She goes to the WNIT pretty much every year. She's not in the tournament. She knows winning. And if she thinks Kyle Neptune can be that guy, so do I. And I think we should all give him the opportunity to do that. And I think that this fan base is going to give him the opportunity to do that because this fan base hasn't had hope like this in a long time. In 20 to 30 years, honestly, was the last time this fan base really had hope of – the basketball program being able to do anything and a lot of credit for that goes to Kyle Neptune and wanting to take this job. A lot of credit goes to Ed Cole, our new athletic director for making the right hire and making a hire that inspires hope and giving this guy the time to create a new culture for this program and create a winning culture at this program. And it's not going to happen overnight. We discussed that. It's going to take time for this to happen, but patience and doing it right are the two most important things right now for fans and for the program as a whole. So for that reason, I'm excited. I'm optimistic. I'm cautiously optimistic, like I mentioned, but I, I think this program is trending in the right direction for sure. And Kyle Neptune's going to be the one to lead the charge in that direction. Anyways, let's talk about the NCAA tournament because it, it was one of the more interesting four days I think I've experienced from this tournament because I don't really know how to react to it as a whole because every good game seemed like a complete offensive struggle. The refs continue to be a storyline, whether it be for the entire ref show that we have seen throughout this tournament, all the way to the fact that we had an official pass out in the first few minutes of the Gonzaga USC game. So, Honestly, like I have, it's weird because I'm I'm excited for the final four. I, I really am, um, but I'm honestly not sure what to take away 
from this weekend. So I, I guess before we get into each region, Ryan, what, what was your takeaway from these last four days? Because um, as a, someone who is supposed to talk about this, I should have an opinion on it, but uh, I'm not entirely sure where I'm at right now. Yeah, I think it is one kind of interesting aspect that I have is the unproven guys are here right now. And by that, I mean teams. It's not the same teams we've seen every year. You know, it's refreshing to get. We're going to have a first-time national championship head coach. I think that's pretty cool. And just when I thought, you know, something on this weekend, just when I thought things were going one way, they go another, right? Like Michigan looks like they're all the way back after stomping Florida State. Even without livers, they turn around. They lose. Loyal Chicago looks like the team to beat in that region. Oregon State upsets them. You know, it was a ton of just kind of stuff like that. USC had probably the two most impressive back-to-back performances, Kansas and Oregon, and follows it up with a dud to Gonzaga. So overall, I think, you know, overall, just we've had a lot of upsets in the early rounds. Things kind of leveled in later. And then we got that last game of the day was – kind of the big upset and the big surprise of the final four. I'm with you. And let's talk about that one because UCLA is, it's not the Cinderella everyone wanted nor expected to be honest. And it, I think first and foremost, it's pretty awesome that Mick Cronin's going to a final four because he's a guy I have loved as a head coach. He deserves so much more credit than he's got. And I know everyone, and I mean, everyone pretty much hated that ire when Mick Cronin was offered the UCLA head coaching job following the firing of Steve Alford. And I mean, he was like their, their third or fourth choice for that job. I remember Tony Bennett was offered the job for sure. There was one other guy who I'm blanking on completely right now, but it's not significant. The, the point is like Mick Cronin and not many people love that hire. I, I love Mick Cronin. I love what he did at Cincinnati. Yes. The tournament struggles were well-documented, but I mean, he really put on, stepped on the gas from, a guy who couldn't win in March, who really only had once in Sweet 16 at Cincinnati, to a guy who is now in the first four, wins an overtime game against Michigan State, beats BYU, stops an Abilene Christian, and then beats two of the hottest teams in the country in Alabama and Michigan to get to the Final Four. What a story that is. And, I mean, we can't talk about UCLA without talking about Johnny Juzang right now, who's arguably the star of the tournament. I mean – from from game one of this tournament, I mean, I mean, technically it was literally game four overall, the nightcap of the first four that went to overtime. When Michigan State was up big at halftime in that game, it was Johnny Juzang who brought him back. And listen, UCLA is much more than Johnny Juzang. I love Tiger Campbell. I love what he's done. Jaime Haskez has had an awesome tournament thus far. Cody Riley, who I think deserves more credit than he's getting due to the lack of size and lack of depth that UCLA had down low. He had to handle Hunter Dickinson for the large portion of that game on – it was yesterday. And even though we fouled out, he did a pretty good job of making his life difficult. It all comes back to Johnny Juzang because you remember – we watched the first half of that game. It looked like Michigan was pulling away. They were up eight at one point early. And Johnny Juzang had 16 of the first 18 points for UCLA, and they were found themselves up at halftime – despite really getting no scoring production from anyone other than him. And he's a, just a great story in college basketball. We talk about a lot of them. I mean, I'm personally sick of, sick of seeing Hep Cronin, personally. I'll, I'll start with that. Uh, but Mick Cronin getting to his first Final Four after being completely doubted. Johnny Juzang transferring from Kentucky, where he wasn't getting a ton of minutes, to UCLA to become a star of this tournament. 
he is the exact reason why people love watching March Madness and college basketball as a whole. And the fact that UCLA is here, a large portion of the credit deserves to go to Johnny Juzang and credit to the Bruins and them for getting there. Yeah, it's really crazy to think about how they were one competent Michigan State possession away from not being here, right? Exactly. That first four game that went to overtime, Michigan State had a shot at the end to win that game. Mm-hmm. And to get all the way here and to beat, you know, crazy, you know, BYU, that was one thing. Abilene Christian, I felt like at that point the bracket kind of just broke nice for them. But then you're able to beat Bama and Michigan back-to-back. It really is impressive. Um, the one thing I will say is it, they didn't do it without luck on their side, right? You know, you sure. saw Alabama – shoot 11 for 25 from the free throw line. Pretty much, you know, one more of those go in, and Alabama is able to pull it away in regulation. Obviously, Alex Reese hits probably the shot of the tournament so far to send us into overtime. And then against Michigan, you know, they go cold down the stretch. They didn't hit a field goal in the last five minutes of the game. But you have to give credit to UCLA for playing defense and stopping them. And Juzane, you know, he had 28 of 51. So you talked about how, um, you know, a large part of the credit goes to him. I think 56% of the credit goes to him because yeah. he scored over half his team's points and you don't ever see that really. So it was kind of a miracle run. Um, obviously without luck that game, Michigan had three shots to take the lead with under 10 seconds, one an air ball by Wagner. And then, you know, Mike Smith and Wagner follows it up with a miss. So brutal loss for Michigan. I know they're hurting right now. You don't want to, you know, hindsight's 2020, but if they have livers, I don't really think that game, is as close as it is. I think he could have been the difference. But at the end of the day, you don't have him. And the way they looked against Florida State, it looked like Michigan was on its way to a Final Four when they were kind of the one seed getting doubted going in. But UCLA was able to stun them. Um, You know, I give a ton of credit. Mick Cronin, you talked about earlier, you've been a fan of him for a while. I think it's awesome that after he got that job and all um, all the dissent and, you know, people weren't happy with it, as you talked about, and he's able to kind of, Shocker have won. They were one of the last teams into the tournament. They lost four straight to end the year. And to get where they are now is just super impressive. And I think we have to talk about this region in the sense that Bama and Michigan, I mean, they, they both threw games away. Yeah. And, like, you talked about it, the free throw line. I mean, 11-25 of 25 for Bama in a game that went to overtime. For Michigan, 6-11. of 11 from the free throw line in a game they lost by two and had plenty of opportunities down the stretch to win that game. And it, it wasn't even just the missed free throws. I mean, Mike Smith was missing layups. Franz Wagner couldn't hit a shot to save his life. He was one of 10 from the field. And you got a feel for that kid. You got a feel for Herb Jones for Alabama, who picked up 2,000 the first 41 seconds of the game against UCLA and then misses two massive free throws with six seconds left in regulation that could have potentially won the game for them before Alex Reese tied it and sent it to overtime on a miracle, which is easily the play of the tournament, easily the game of the tournament thus far. But, I mean, these are two teams that they looked like they had – I don't want to call it jitters because this team, those, both those teams were, were too good and too experienced, honestly, in those situations – to be calling it first time jitters in that spot. But like you look at the stars of those teams, like Mike Smith, a grad transfer from Columbia, who was awesome all year, struggled the entire night for Michigan. Franz Wagner, a sophomore who's, who's like, who's played a ton of games in his college career, decides to have the worst game of his career. 
Um, Herb Jones struggles mightily. John Petty, I thought, was really the only guy who could create his own shot for Bama in that game to go with Javon Quinterly off the bench. But Jaden Shackelford doesn't do much. Like, and, and for that reason, like, I, I want to say they choked away. But at the same time, like, you got to give credit to UCLA because they, they were the ones that made life difficult. And, and we talk about Mick Cronin and we talk about him as a defensive coach, and he certainly is, even though UCLA obviously – on the efficiency side of things, offensively, they were a much better team defensively this year, but they've guarded their tails off in the tournament. They press you on the perimeter. They pack the paint. Tiger Campbell's one of the sneakiest guards on the perimeter when it comes to defending. But, I mean, UCLA, like, you would think if it happens once, okay, maybe Bama has a dud. But for it to happen to Michigan as well, who hasn't had many duds at all this year, and coming off the game where they looked unstoppable against Florida State, at some point I think you just have to give credit to UCLA. And I think it's awesome that they're here. And, and they deserve to be here for sure. Yeah, you talked about all the struggles that Bama and Michigan had. And even with that, they had shots to win the game at the end, which is why I give UCLA the credit because the free throw, you know, weird jitters, all that stuff happens. But for UCLA to be in kind of the same position two games in a row where they're stealing games – they really didn't have, you know, any right to win. And to be able to do that, I do think it speaks to what they do as a team because at some point luck runs out and you just are a good basketball team. And that, that is what UCLA is. I'm not trying to say they got here just on luck because they certainly deserve to be here. You know, they won handily early. And then they faced two, you know, they faced two powerhouses in Bama and Michigan. We thought those two teams were the cream of the crop of this region coming in and UCLA was able to stunt both of them. So I give them a ton of credit for doing that. And let's talk about one of the other really good stories in tournament. I, I know we were going to go to Gonzaga initially and then Baylor, but um, I, I want to talk about Houston first because I, I look at great stories in this tournament. And, I mean, how can you not talk about Kelvin Sampson getting back to the Final Four after what that guy's been through? I mean, I mean, he got a five-year essential ban from college basketball. He was in – NBA assistant during that process, essentially basketball purgatory, comes back to the college game to Houston, rebuilds this program in five years, and now they're going back to a Final Four. And I, I don't care how they got there. I, I want to say that first and foremost. I don't care that they didn't play a single um, seed less than 10 to get to the Final Four. They got there. And they took care of business, and they took care of what's in front of them. You want to blame other people? Blame Illinois for losing to Loyola Chicago. Blame West Virginia for not being able to figure out the Syracuse zone. Um, blame Loyola Chicago, too, if you want, for not being able to beat an Oregon State team. That was one of the other stars of this tournament. And their run as a 12 seed, winning the Pac-12 after being finished, picked to finish last in the back 12 um, Give Houston the grand. Give – and. Oklahoma State, same thing. Like, they lost, they lost to a double-digit seed, too. So, uh, I think Houston deserves a lot more credit there than they're getting. This team's really freaking good, man. Like, like I, I know people are going to rail Baylor. And I mean rail Baylor in the Final Four. Um, I think the line opened up at four. It's already moved to five. But this Houston team is damn good, man. They guard their tails off. They play really good defense. My favorite player of this tournament right now is Dejan Giroux, um, the transfer from UMass, who has been just awesome in a Houston uniform, battling through pain to beat Rutgers, 
coming out and dominating two of the hottest players in the tournament in back-to-back games in Buddy Beheim and Ethan Thompson. I, I said on this show last week that the Cuse matchup was a horrible matchup, and one of the reasons for that was Jarreau because he was going to be able to take away Buddy Beheim, and they did just that. They held Cuse under 50 points. Oregon State couldn't get anything going in the first half, and even though they were able to come back and tie the game, a lot of credit needs to go to Houston because they defend, they rebound the crap out of the ball. They have some alpha scorers in Quentin Grimes and Marcus Sasser, who after the Rutgers game, Sasser had his worst game in his career against Rutgers. He comes out and balls out against Cuse and Oregon State back-to-back to get from the Final Four. I really enjoy watching this team. They're hard-nosed. They play slow. They play ugly, but they're good. And they got to the Final Four, and – they deserve to be there because this is a team that's really good, and I think they're going to give Baylor a handful. Yeah, you could give yourself a little pat on the back because you, you did have Houston in your final four. You did talk about the matchup nightmare for Syracuse, so, you know, good job, obviously, on your end. But 100% what they've been able to do defensively, you know, you mentioned Bayheim and Ethan Thompson, who going into those respective games were probably one of the best player on their teams and two some of the hottest. But he goes one for nine from three when he was making every three going into this game. Ethan Thompson, three for 12 from the field. And they were just able to stumble on teams. Um, you know, Oregon State, I do want to give them credit, actually, for coming back. 100%. Five minutes into that game, I thought it was over. I texted you. I'm on the wrong side of this one. <laughs> and they're able to tie it at 55 with three and a half minutes left. And cover. And cover. Let's not forget the cover part. Last, last second cover there by Oregon State, who were kind of the cover kings of the tournament. Uh, great run for Wayne Tinkle and them to kind of come out of nowhere in the Pac-12. But, yeah, Quinn Grimes hits a three late, and then Houston kind of holds on. Uh, you talked about the seeding earlier, and I do agree with you. It's not their fault that, you know, the top other seeds in this region lost. Um, they are the first team ever to actually make the Final Four without facing a single-digit seed, which, you know, I was looking at that into the show if that was the case. But even with, you know, with the seeding they face, I don't think that's indicative of how this team played because if you looked at the teams going in, Houston was getting doubted. Um, obviously, they're favorites, but – you know, we talked about that Syracuse matchup. A lot of people were on Syracuse. Mm-hmm. Rutgers had them on the ropes, and that kind of, I feel like, got people off Houston a little bit. But what they've been able to do um, these last two games without really shooting well at all, you know, they shoot 32% from the field versus Oregon State, and they're still able to put, put them away. Um, and that's an Oregon State team who's suddenly all Chicago, who, you know, we thought that they were kind of, you know, uh, the team of this region to get to the Final Four. So, yeah, I give Kelvin Sampson a ton of credit what he's done. Houston is their first time in the Final Four in 37 years. They do deserve it. We'll see what happens after this. I think the Baylor match was fascinating for some of the defensive matchups there. Yeah. But great job on Houston to take care of business and beat who they had in front of them. Yeah, I, I mean, I love this matchup between Houston and Baylor. And I've said it all year. If there's a team to me that is going to dethrone Gonzaga and Baylor, I think the team that has the best chance to do it is Houston because of a few reasons. One, they can beat you in unique ways because they're the best offensive rebounding team in the country by my estimation, and the numbers tend to agree with me. They can guard the perimeter. They have a shutdown guy in Dejan Giroux, and they have individual playmakers who can score in Sasser and Quentin Grimes. So like Grimes is an awesome story that we don't really talk yeah. about because he, went, he declared for the draft. He was a McDonald's All-American out of Kansas his first year. He declares for the draft, like the process, comes back, and Bill Self didn't have a scholarship for him. He said, you have to transfer. So he ends up going to Houston, sits out a year, 
comes out as an All-American this year and, and just playing his tail off. I mean, he, he's been one of the players of the tournament along with Giroux. And, like, like, the reason, like, I'm so impressed with this Houston team, like, offensively they've been terrible for the large portion of the tournament. And from an efficiency standpoint, this is one of the best offensive teams all year. Like, we talk about the Syracuse game. Like, Sasser was awful. Grimes made some big shots, but Giroux was, like, playing hurt the entire game. And they still find a way to come back late and win. Against Oregon State, my favorite stat from this one was in the first half, Grimes and Sasser were like 5 of 18 or 5 of 19 from the field, and they were still up 17 yeah. at half. Like that, they can beat you without playing well on the offensive side of the ball because they rebound, they create havoc, they make you work for it on the defensive end. And, and that's why I'm really fascinated for this matchup with Baylor because one of their weaknesses – if there is one for Baylor with the way they play four guard sets all the time is rebounding. Like they don't have, they don't have a ton of guys who can really crash the boards and Arkansas gave them a little trouble with that early on. I thought Nova gave them some trouble with that. And let's go into talking about this region right now before we get to Gonzaga, because I mean, first off Oral Roberts, shout out to them, shout out to the run they made. I think, Everyone thought that shot from A. Smith was going in, and we were all devastated when it didn't. But what a game that was with Arkansas. And, like, shout-out to Arkansas, man. Like, they played their, their butts off this entire tournament, and they just ran into, unfortunately, the second-best team in the country in Baylor coming off their worst shooting performance of the season, and it wasn't even close. Um, And they were able to fight back, got it to four in the second half, but Baylor able to pull away. But – I mean, the story of this, this region is Baylor's back by a mile. And I said this before, I said this before the, um, before last episode, we, I mean, we both thought Baylor was an awful matchup for Villanova because Villanova doesn't defend the three. Well, Baylor's the best three point shooting team in the country. If you told me Baylor was going to shoot three of 18 or three of 19 from three against Nova, I mean, I don't know if I think they'd be playing. And not only did they win, covered. they covered. They covered a seven-and-a-half-point spread. That, that's remarkable. And they were losing by seven-and-a-half. But give, give credit to this Baylor team, man. Like, they find ways to win. And they attacked the basket. They only had one made three, I think, in the second half. And that was from Adam Flagler. And you could shout out so many guys on this Baylor team. Flagler is one I want to shout out because he's a guy – I've been saying is their X factor for a while. Can come off the bench. Baylor doesn't win that game against Illinois without Adam Flagler. But Davion Mitchell has emerged as the best player on this team and the most important player on this team. That is not a slight against Jared Butler. Jared Butler is awesome. Had a horrific game against Villanova and hasn't shot the ball entirely well. But Davion Mitchell is the motor that makes this team run. And you really saw it in the second half against Villanova. The way he guards the perimeter, he made life on Justin Moore really difficult. You look at the Arkansas game, when he goes out with three fouls in the first half, that's when Arkansas made their run back in the game. And they they were up by as much as 18 at one point in the first half. But the point about Baylor in general, besides Mitchell, is that they beat you in so many different ways. They, they can shoot the lights out. Their guards really defend you. And – they can just find so many different ways to score in addition to making three. I mean, Matthew Meyer comes off the bench as a bucket. Um, their bigs played really well against Arkansas. I thought Flo Thamba and Jonathan Chamochachua, everyday John, they call him, just doing everything for you. Know, 
on both ends of the floor. I mean, I'm, I'm hella impressed with Baylor. That's all I got to say. And I'm not surprised by it either. I mean, I, I, I've been saying since November that Gonzaga Baylor needs to be the national championship. And now we're two games away from it and both teams playing their best basketball at the right time. Yeah, this is my favorite stat so far from Baylor that backs up everything you were just saying. So far in the four games, they've had three leading scores, uh, three different leading scores. And that doesn't include Jarrett Butler or Davion Mitchell, who you just brought up. Butler, the star point yeah. guard. Davion Mitchell, the guy who has emerged, along with Macy Oteague, too. He's been there. But just, you know, what you talked about, the amount of ways they can get at you. When you have guys like Jared Butler struggling and you're still able to put up huge numbers, it's a, it's a nightmare for the other team. And that's why I think that going to this game versus Houston, we'll get into it in a second. I like, you know, how they're able to score in comparison to how inefficient Houston is um, another note from this reading. You talk about the Oral Roberts Arkansas game, you know, Oral Roberts being up 12 miraculous. I think it's fair to say they're the best 15 seed of all time. Mm-hmm. You know, you have the leading score in the NCAA having a shot, you know, pretty wide open three to send you the elite eight. That's really all you can ask for as a 15. So I want to give a ton of credit to them, ton of credit to the must bus in Arkansas. Um, that game against Baylor was never really, you know, in danger for Baylor. It got to four a few times. Arkansas just couldn't hit that one big three to make it a one-possession game. But good season for them. And Baylor, going into this tournament, I think I had reservations. And I talked about just because of how they came back post-COVID and were in some games that they should have been blowing teams out. But I think it was after the Wisconsin game where I kind of came on this and said, you know, they're all the way back. Don't listen to anything I said. This team is going to be in the Final Four. Mm -hmm. And you talked about the matchup we've been talking about all year with Gonzaga Baylor and we are only two games away and it would be fitting if we got it just the way this year is unraveled I'm also just glad that Baylor was able to bounce back from COVID because we've yeah. seen a Kansas we've seen a UVA not be able to get through it obviously the timing was worse for them but good for Baylor to you know get that in the rearview mirror first final four for them in 71 years and good for Scott Drew overall Scott Drew with the best rebuilding job ever I mean he took over for the disgraced Dave Bliss um, after – I mean, if you haven't read that story about what Baylor did to cover up a murder from one of their own players, I mean, they couldn't play games. There was one season they were limited to – I believe it was 17 games and one at a conference game. And, I mean, what a job Scott Drew has done coming over from Valparaiso after one year and leading this program to where it is now. And he's one of the best coaches in the country. And he's made – Baylor a force and Waco has become a college basketball destination so give him a ton of credit for that and happy to see Baylor back and now we go to Gonzaga and what else is there to say about Gonzaga right now like I honestly don't know because I think we've talked about it all along they were gonna have a cakewalk to the final four they were gonna cruise through and that's exactly what they did they took care of business they dominated Creighton they dominated Oklahoma, even though Oklahoma put a little game pressure on them. I mean, I think their total margin of victory was like 96 points in the region and an average margin of defeat of about 17 and a half points per game. I mean, that, that says it all. And the Elite Eight game last night against USC, if there was one team that could give – Gonzaga a difficult matchup that wasn't Baylor or wasn't Houston like I talked about it was probably USC because they had a guy who you thought could maybe slow down Drew Timmy 
And what does Drew Timmy do? He has like three steals in the first three minutes of the game. He's playing point guard at one point. They're up by 20 in a matter of minutes and they dominate from start to finish. And, and I have a take right now. I'm, I'm going to say this right now and I don't think it should be a hot take, but given the way things have unfolded, given that he was only a second team all American this year, which is outrageous in my opinion, Drew Timmy should be the national player of the year. In my, in my opinion, like I get the year Luca Garza has had, I get the year I Desumu has had, but I, I don't think there's been anyone as dominant on a consistent basis as Drew Timmy has been. And we can talk about how the three guys on Gonzaga, Suggs, Kispert, and Timmy, they all kind of overshadow each other, which they do to a large extent because Corey Kispert's a first-team All-American, Suggs is a second-team All-American, and going to be a top-five pick this year. The, the guy who's consistently the most important player on Gonzaga, night in and night out, he drives them offensively and makes them one of – probably not one of – it's maybe the best team of all time in college basketball – is Drew Timmy. And for that reason, I think he should be the national player of the year. I don't know what you think, Ryan. I, I know there are other deserving candidates to that, but if I was, if I had a vote and I was making it today, it would be Drew Timmy for national player of the year. I mean, I understand that just because of what we're seeing in front of us, but I'm still going Luca, even the way he ended the year, he still went out on his best foot. It's just a shame that his team couldn't play defense the way Gonzaga can. But whatever this podcast becomes, Jackson, we'll always be able to say the very first thing that we ever talked about was how Gonzaga had a cakewalk to the Final Four. We were both in agreement there that they weren't going to get battle tested. We weren't in on UVA, Kansas, or Iowa. And USC ended up, by the time this matchup came along, there was a lot of belief that they could give them trouble. It was kind of like the this will be the test for Gonzaga. They'll finally have to, you know, play for 40 minutes of basketball. Oh, man. At their top end. The game was game, over within two minutes. It was 7 nothing. you know, two minutes into the game. Everyone talked about how the interior defense of USC, they'll slow down Drew Timmy. He had 13 points 10 minutes into the game. Like, it was just ridiculous how all the Gonzaga doubters kind of didn't even have a second to doubt this team in this performance. And this was USC coming off two dominant performances, shutting down Kansas, running him out the gym, handling Oregon, who came into that game, putting up 90-plus on Iowa. So for Gonzaga to win this with ease, never have even a slight moment of worry. I think there was three minutes into the Oklahoma game, they were down. I think that was the latest into the game. I was slightly worried about Gonzaga getting out of this region. But they dominated it. And one interesting thing is Suggs has kind of taken a back seat in this tournament. He's averaging less 10 shots a game. They're letting Timmy kind of, you know, be the number one, and it's worked out so far. He's 75 points in the last three games. He's definitely been the best player in the tournament. And, you know, Mark Few this year, I felt, was a championship or bust for him, especially going into the tournament with how good they've looked, the collection of talent from all different skill sets. And they're looking pretty in the Final Four. They have a favorable matchup in 11 seed Cinderella, UCLA. So we'll see what happens there. But this was definitely Gonzaga's region to win. There was no excuses, and they, they shut, you know, if you were doubting for some reason, they shut you up big time. They're not done, and they just look like a wagon right now in the best team in college basketball. And, and Suggs has taken a backseat to an extent shooting-wise, but, I mean, you look at his performance in US, USA. I mean, he was two assists away from a triple-double with 18, 10, and 8. He's been terrific in terms of orchestrating the offense, and they just have so many guys that can beat you. That, that That's, like, what it comes down to with Gonzaga. And, 
they created so many live ball turnovers against USC. And what people don't talk about with Gonzaga enough is their defense. Like, they're top five in defensive efficiency this year. They give up a lot of points because they play fast, and sometimes they're not motivated to play. And I don't blame them. When you play in the WCC, it's hard to be motivated to play every single game. Hmm. And you've seen in the NCAA tournament, that was nothing to worry about. They'll get UCLA. They're, they're going to have the biggest spread ever in Final Four history that's opened up at 14 points against UCLA. But let's talk about the Final Four because it's probably – we were – I mean, we were one Franz Wagner three away from getting the top four teams in America, in my opinion, at least, in the Final Four. But we get the top three teams via Ken Palm. Um, Gonzaga won, Baylor two, Houston three, Michigan was number four. UCLA is ranked 15th, but um, there's not much to say about this Gonzaga-UCLA game. I, I think it'll be interesting to see how Gonzaga tries to take away Johnny Juzang. That's like the one storyline I really look to because I, this is a matchup nightmare down low for UCLA because I don't know if they have anyone who can stop Drew Timmy. And if Hunter Dickinson got Cody Riley in foul trouble, imagine what Drew Timmy can do with his creativity, his footwork, his deceit on the low block, playing in the high post as well. So, I mean, I, I see Gonzaga winning this game. I see them covering. I don't think there's really much else to say about it. This is going to be just a tune-up for the national championship game. And usually when people say this, you see, like they'll, UCLA will come out and win this game. But the, the spread says it all in this one. It's a 14-point spread. No one's touching Gonzaga. They're going to steamroll their way, I think, to the national championship game. And I just don't want to spend too much time on it because I think we're wasting our time, frankly, because I don't see any way UCLA comes out and wins this game. Yeah, there, here's the thing I'll say about it. The reason Gonzaga is going to blow out UCLA and, you know, shout out UCLA, obviously we've praised them a lot, is one, they won't go 11 for 25 from the free throw line. They won't shoot less than 40%. They won't go the last five minutes without a field goal. And if UCLA has Johnny Juzang scoring 55% of his team's points, they will lose by 40 you're going to need other guys to go out and score because the way that Gonzaga is able to get after it, I think going into the tournament, they're averaging 92 a game. It's went down a little bit, but they're still putting up 85 plus a game. I just don't like this matchup for UCLA at all. The spread, as you talked about it, says it all, minus 14. Um, you know, I think it's going to be a blowout. UCLA has had luck on their side. They won't be able to get it versus Gonzaga. There's too many guys on this team that will beat you. Andrew Nemberg had a big game, too. We didn't talk about him. Joel Ayayi is awesome. And I just think Gonzaga, you talked about a tune-up game. To say that in the Final Four is insane in any, any non-context. But if you're looking at this matchup here, it's one that UCLA just won't be able to win. I'm sorry. I can't find a single reason why UCLA should win this game. The only outside chance I give UCLA of winning this game is because they can play – with a slowdown pace. And that's how you have to, like, attack and zag. You have to slow them down significantly. And UCLA is one of the slowest tempo teams in the country. And it gave Michigan a lot of trouble. It gave Bam a lot of trouble, who was up there in terms of tempo with Gonzaga. So th that's the only reason I'll give them an outside chance. But I mean, we know how this game's going to go, I, I think. Um, they might feel some game pressure in the first half, but um, I, I think – Eventually, that'll be overcome. So, we both got Gonzaga. We both got him covering. And let's go to the intriguing matchup, to say the least. Baylor-Houston 
for an opportunity to meet Gonzaga in the national championship game. This matchup fascinates me. It really does um, for a lot of reasons. But I think I've been saying it. I said it before. Houston is the team that is best matched to take down Gonzaga or Baylor because similar to what I was talking about literally seconds ago, they control pace better than anyone in the country on the opposite end of the spectrum. I mean, Gonzaga pushes you like no one else has seen. Baylor can do the same thing offensively with the way they can run. But Houston does the opposite. They they slow you down. They take over 19 seconds per possession on offense. That's, That's bottom 30 in the nation when it comes to tempo. And for that reason, I mean, they, they can beat you. Like, like I, I think Houston does have a shot in this game more than people are going to give them, in my opinion, because I, I think people watched the Baylor-Arkansas game. And listen, I think Baylor ends up winning this game, but I think this game goes to the wire, personally. I, I think Baylor's going to struggle initially because their guards are going to be guarded on the perimeter. I, I think the X factor for me is can Dejan Giroux completely take one of Baylor's guards out of the game and make life difficult for them? Because if he can take away Mitchell or Butler, that's going to force the emphasis to be on Teague or Flagler or whatever a Butler-Mitchell isn't taken away. That, that's the X factor for me in this game because we, we, I think this is going to be a slow-paced game. I, I, I think – we know that coming in, and Baylor can win at a slow pace. They like to speed it up, but they can win at a slow pace, and we've seen that thus far. But if Jarreau's able to take away Mitchell or Butler, I think specifically it has to be Mitchell because of the way he, he motors their offense. Can one of these other three guards step up and, and make plays? And I think they can, and I think they will. But at the same time, it's going to give Baylor a lot of trouble and it's going to slow them down. It's probably going to frustrate them a little bit. And that's what Houston does so well. And I think the offensive rebounding could give Baylor a lot of trouble with all this said, I'm taking Baylor to win this game because I think they're the better team. I think they had too many playmakers to do so. But like I said, this is the most difficult matchup Baylor has seen all season. And for that reason, I think Houston's going to give them a lot of trouble, but Baylor will win. Yeah, I do really like Baylor to win, like, a ton. The one thing I'll say is they need to actually play well, though. Like, in Gonzaga's instance, I could see Kisberg having a terrible game or something like that, not that that would ever happen, and they could so easily win and cover. I think for Baylor to win, as weird as it sounds, you know, they're going to have to play up to what they've done all year. You talked about the Jarreau-Mitchell matchup. I had that kind of circled here as the number one thing I'm looking for out of everything in these two games because I think it's so fascinating You know, you talked about the pace that Houston plays at, and the reason I like Baylor to kind of be able to combat that is because they are number three in Kempom efficiency in offense, and they are number, I think they're number one in three-point percentage, 41%. So they shoot the lights out. They are really efficient, but I do love how, you know, Jarrell will be able to, you know, maybe take one of these guys out. I talked about earlier how balanced they've been with three leading scorers. Four games doesn't include Butler or Mitchell, but – if you're still able to take one of those A guys out, it's going to put a lot of pressure on everyone else. We've seen Butler struggle big time, you know, so far in this tournament in a, in a game or a half or whatever. And if you put a lot of pressure on him and he's not able to perform, I could see it getting a little scary for Baylor. The one thing I will say on Baylor's defense, which I don't think it's getting 
obviously we know how good it is, but they did force 15 turnovers against Arkansas. So I do think they'll be able to hang, you know, they'll be able to stop Houston, who already is super inefficient uh, from the field. So I like that matchup there just because with Houston, you know, they've held opponents at 55 a game. I don't see any scenario where Baylor is not in the 60-plus range. And for Houston to win, they're going to have to hold them, you know, in that range. So with that being said, I do like Baylor. Um, I'm not touching the spread minus five because anything could happen. And Houston is so good defensively. It seems like that'd be like a recipe for a cover and keeping it super close. But I really am confident that Baylor is going to win. I think we're going to get the Gonzaga-Baylor matchup that you and everyone, I feel like, all year has been alluding to to happen. Yeah, well, I mean, we'll see what happens. And I think – I don't want to go into too far Gonzaga-Baylor national championship right. because it's no sure thing. I mean, Ken Palm has this as a one-point game right now. I mean, they have, they have Baylor winning by one, 72-71. So – like, I don't want to get too far into a potential Gonzaga-Baylor national championship and what that'll look like, but, I mean, they're the one team that can guard Gonzaga on the perimeter, I think, and their ability to score with Gonzaga is one that we haven't seen other than, I mean, Iowa's the only other team that could really score with Gonzaga, and but they just didn't have the defense to go with it. Baylor has both, and for that reason, that game will be heck. Hell exciting to watch, and it should be fun. But we both have a Gonzaga, oh Gonzaga, Gonzaga Baylor national championship game. I'll, I'll put it to you: Who are you taking if that happens? I think we both will probably be taking the Zags, but have to ask it anyway. So, who would you be taking in a Gonzaga? Yeah, everything that I've said all year would be insane if I backed out on Gonzaga now. Have that seven fifty future from November, you know, waiting in my account. Um, so I'm going to take Gonzaga to win it all. I think this will be the first undefeated season in college basketball since Indiana in the mid-70s. Um, I do think that would be a fascinating game. I think you actually, no matter who Gonzaga plays in the national championship, you know, Bell or Houston, it will be a test. I don't see them going every single game but one this year, you know, by double digits. I do think that will truly be a test. But I love, I love Gonzaga here versus UCLA, and I like them overall to win this national championship. I'm with you. I, I, this is the best college basketball team I've ever seen. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there, there's really like four teams from the last decade that stand out to me, and Gonzaga is one of them. This Baylor team is also one of them. Uh, and then really the 2018 Nova team, that Kyle Neptune was a part of that we talked about um, with Brunson, DiVincenzo, Pascal. I mean, they, Spellman, they just had so many guys who could score the basketball. And then that 14-15 Kentucky team with Carl Anthony Towns, Trey Lyles, Harrison Twins, Devin Booker, Willie Cauley-Stein. Like, those, those are the four best teams I've ever seen. And, and maybe the 2012 Kentucky team in there too with Anthony Davis that won a national championship. So – um, I, I think this might be the, one of the most anticipated national championship games ever if it happens. And, I mean, I'm hoping we get it. And we're two games away from seeing it happen. So that'll wrap it up for the 40 Minutes of Hell podcast this week. Next time we talk, it's going to be sad. We'll have a national championship. College hoops will be done for the season. But um, we have maybe the most anticipated college basketball game in a long time.
coming up if Gonzaga and Baylor are able to advance to a national championship. But from Ryan Gregware, I'm Jackson Isle. This has been the 40 Minutes of Health podcast. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time here on WFUV Sports.